This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Who is America's Trumpiest lawyer? Well, one lawyer who hasn't led past securities fraud charges or corruption allegations from former staff stop him from being the first to sue the Biden administration is certainly in the running. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's fought scandals before and has earned a reputation as something of a serial rule breaker. And of course, he has connections to the former president. Joining me is David Yaffe Bellany, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Start by telling us about what some would call the meritless lawsuit he filed regarding the 2020 election. Sure. So people in Texas have known about Ken Paxton for a really long time, but I think he really arrived in the consciousness of, of a majority of Americans in December 2020 when he filed a lawsuit with the Supreme Court directly to the Supreme Court. It was Texas suing other states attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. This was kind of the sort of final Hail Mary pass thrown by the Republicans who were trying to reverse the election result. It was a type of case, one state suing other states, that can be heard directly by the Supreme Court. Um, And so it bypasses the normal kind of winding legal process and theoretically could have achieved a sort of fast turnaround for those Republican forces. And Ken Paxton of Texas was the man who, who put his name to that lawsuit, which was of course, you know, promptly rejected as completely meritless uh, by the Supreme Court. And since then, since Biden has taken office, he's sort of making Texas what California was in the Trump administration. Yeah, he's really been at the vanguard of the uh, kind of Republican uh, legal groups that are, you know, suing the Biden administration to try to reverse all sorts of executive actions. So, He was actually the first Republican attorney general to sue Biden. He filed a suit mere days after the inauguration, challenging a moratorium on on deportations that Biden had established at the U.S.-Mexico border. And he was actually successful in temporarily, at least for now, blocking that moratorium. He's also sued to try to make it harder for asylum seekers to get into the country. A lot of his focus um, as a a Texan has been on, on immigration issues. So every time I read a story about him, it says he's under investigation for securities fraud. That's been years and years. What's that about? So he's actually not just under investigation. He's been under indictment for securities fraud um, since, his first, since early in his first term, back in uh, 2015. He was accused by you know state authorities in Texas of trying to get friends and associates of his to invest in a sort of struggling technology company without revealing to those people that he was actually being compensated by the company for soliciting their investments. And that was an apparent violation of a securities law that he'd actually voted to pass during his time in the Texas legislature. Um, And so he was indicted, um, you know, released on bond, and has proceeded to basically grind those legal proceedings to a halt by waging a series of procedural disputes over the charges that actually don't get at the central issue of whether he broke the law. So there's been a long-running dispute over the venue for any trial. Should it be in Ken Paxton's, you know, home county of Collin County, Texas, outside Dallas? You know, could he get a fair trial there or should it be held somewhere else like Houston? And so there's been huge legal back and forth about venue that slows things down. But really his main weapon kind of preventing this case from going anywhere is that he's been challenging the funding of the prosecution. 
And the prosecution was vulnerable because the um, local district attorney who would normally have overseen this case had to recuse himself because he was a friend of Paxton. And so a judge hired two special prosecutors, two kind of media-savvy criminal defense lawyers from Houston to serve as special prosecutors in this case. And so they have become a target for um, Paxton and his supporters in the same way that Robert Mueller and the special counsel's office would target the Trump and his supporters. And, you know, Paxton and his people have been arguing for years now that the $300 hourly rate that these special prosecutors were charging the local government to work on this case was somehow excessive. And they've actually succeeded in cutting off all funding to the prosecution. So there's been this long-running dispute over whether the prosecutor should be paid, this equally long-running dispute over where the trial should take place. And, and sort of that's combined to sort of prevent us from really getting anywhere. In your story, you talk about how his reputation as a serial rule breaker started a long time ago in a Texas courthouse. Explain that. Sure. So back in back in 2013, when Ken Paxson was still a state senator in Texas, he was caught in a kind of grainy security camera footage, you know, appearing to pluck a $1,000 Mont Blanc pen um, at the security desk of, of a local courthouse. The pen belonged to another lawyer who just left it there accidentally. And you can see on video Ken, uh, Ken Paxson kind of picking it up and, and, and pocketing it. Um, eventually, the lawyer had lost the pen, contacted the local sheriff, received the footage, and went to Paxton. Paxton returned the pen and said, this was a great misunderstanding. You know, I did nothing wrong. But as you can imagine, this was, you know, picked up in the Texas political media. Um, and it became this kind of funny story that captured some of these, you know, broader ethical concerns about Paxton. The argument being that he's the type of person who just would commit petty theft and think nothing about it. And, you know, he also has these sort of broader legal issues hanging over him. When he ran for re-election, I saw the, the photo where the person running against him had a truck with a huge picture of Ken Paxton's booking photo. That didn't affect the election. He's proved to have nine lives politically. And yes, he was reelected in, in 2018. He didn't have a Republican opponent in the primary, partly because he had succeeded in running so far to the right that there you know, weren't really conservatives who could kind of outflank him on the right, which is how you win Republican primaries in Texas. And his kind of PR campaign against the securities fraud indictment, the idea that it was a witch hunt, that the charges were trumped up, that it was a politicized prosecution of a political figure, you know, that really kind of resonated with Republicans in Texas and so prevented them from that primary challenge. So, of course, you had a Democrat challenge him in the general, a, a Yale-educated lawyer named uh, Justin Nelson, who had a very impressive resume, though no real political background. And Nelson turned the securities case into the centerpiece of his campaign. And yes, he appeared in front of a truck with, you know, Ken Paxton's mugshot blown up. He actually got a hold of that security footage of Paxton allegedly stealing the pen and turned that into an attack ad that you know, was featured on the John Oliver show. And so he really zeroed in on these ethical issues. But, you know, ultimately, Democrats don't win statewide elections in Texas. It hasn't happened in decades. Um, and it's been the kind of holy grail of the Texas Democratic Party for a long time. And Nelson came close, but he ultimately lost, which is sort of a, a testament to the strength of the Republican Party in Texas, that even somebody like Paxton, with all of the legal and ethical issues, hanging over his head, still won re-election in those circumstances. He also is using his connection to Trump to his benefit. Absolutely. He's succeeded in really buddying up to Trump. Trump endorsed him in 2018 at a a, a National Rifle Association convention where Trump was was speaking. He said, I endorse Ken Paxton. I also endorse his wife, Angela Paxton, who is running for the state Senate. 
And so he's really kind of cast himself as Trump's biggest legal defender. And Trump's incredibly popular in Texas. And so, you know, it's been a successful political strategy for Texas. He is involved in yet another scandal. Eight people within his office became whistleblowers. So this was a scandal that exploded in the fall and for a while really looked like it could end Paxton's career, like he might actually be forced to resign in the wake of this. Paxton had a long-standing friendship with a guy named Nate Paul, who's a real estate developer in Austin, who's had his own legal troubles, but has also become a kind of prominent figure in the Austin real estate world by buying up uh, lots of uh, you know high-priced, high-value downtown properties in the city. So he and Paxton were friends. In 2019, Paul became the subject of an FBI investigation, and his home was actually raided by the FBI. And that sort of triggered a series of events in which Paxton kind of intervened in various ways to try to help Paul out. So, for instance, Paul wanted information about why the FBI had raided his apartment. And so he filed an open records request to try to get some of that information. It would be very unusual for the Texas government to turn over documents relating to an open FBI investigation. But that request ended up at Paxton's office, and Paxton started pressuring his top staffers, his top aides, to to do something to to help get these records uh, to Paul. At the same time, he also uh, basically forced the uh, attorney general's office over the objections of the staff to intervene in a lawsuit that Paul was involved in and to intervene on Paul's behalf to kind of help him out in that way as well. Paul also kind of concocted a theory that FBI agents and U.S. prosecutors had somehow altered the warrant for the search of his house that had been granted by a judge in ways that were illegal. And he wanted the Texas Attorney General's office to investigate this. Paxton appointed a, a special prosecutor to look into this. There's a certain irony in, in Paxton hiring a special prosecutor after railing against the special prosecutor in his own securities case. But he gets a special prosecutor to work on it, you know, even after his own staff objected. And his staff was, was furious about what was going on, had, had deep concerns, you know, thought that Paxton might be being bribed by Paul, that uh, he might be the victim of blackmail. And en masse, this group of top deputies resigned, reported Paxton to local authorities, you know, went public to the press. And it was a huge scandal in Texas politics. And Republicans who stood by Paxton during the securities fraud case started coming out and criticizing him, saying, this looks really bad. You know, this looks corrupt. So we've got U.S. prosecutors in San Antonio who are investigating Paxton. So you know, that could be a federal indictment on top of the state indictment that he's already contending with. You know, he's had to rebuild his staff, which has caused various issues, you know, at the same time that all this was happening, Texas was preparing a big antitrust case against Google. The guy who was spearheading that work was one of the aides who resigned in protest. And so Paxton's had to go to outside law firms, ask the legislature for more money to help hire people to come in and work on that Google case. So, you know, there have been all kinds of, you know, issues, both political, legal, and practical, you know, stemming from this Nate Paul situation. It's also emerged that Paul was the employer of Paxton's former mistress, sort of adding another kind of element to this mix and also providing a kind of potential rationale for what Paxton was doing. You know, he wanted Paul to give a job to this mistress, you know, and, and you know, keep her happy and keep Paul happy. That type of hypothesis that people in Texas political circles are kind of floating around. But ultimately, you know, we don't really know the full story of what was kind of motivating his sort of unusual actions on, on behalf of Paul. But it certainly inflicted a lot of political damage it's motivated uh, two Republicans, two prominent Texas Republicans so far to announce primary challenges against him. It's at the heart of this FBI investigation that's ongoing. And so it's really put him in peril. 
And as you point out, it was the extramarital affair that seems to be more problematic for conservatives than the rest of the things he's accused of doing. Certainly for some people. I mean, there's a, there, there are a range of views on this, and there are certainly conservatives in Texas who are appalled by the corruption allegations and for whom that's the main issue. But an important thing to understand about Paxton, he's often compared to Trump, and he does have certain similarities to Trump in the way that he's kind of adjacent to criminal behavior and that there are all these kinds of ethical concerns, yet he survived. But, you know, unlike Trump, he had a reputation as a kind of a Boy Scout. He was a super religious, well-behaved, had a strong marriage, strong family life. That was a big element of his appeal to conservatives in Texas. So whereas for Trump, it's not really a big deal, at least politically, for him to be accused of having affairs. For, for Paxton, it's pretty damaging because it kind of chips away at the whole basis of his political appeal. And so, yes, he's had, you know, evangelical conservatives who supported him for years turn away from him over the allegation of this affair, which he's never denied. And unlike Trump, he's the top law enforcement authority in the state of Texas. So it seems so strange to me that he can have all these charges and still survive as the Texas attorney general. I think it's really a story about the strength of the Republican Party in Texas over the last two decades. And it's also a story about the power of Donald Trump and about how savvy political operators align themselves with Trump and basically use their association with him as a political lifeline. And the question now is, does that still work in 2021? You know, Trump's out of office. He's still an incredibly influential figure in the party. But is he so powerful that alignment with him can help you overcome allegations of corruption, allegations of an affair. And we're going to find out next year when when Paxton goes up against George P. Bush, that's Jeb's son, in a Republican primary for re-election as Attorney General. You spoke to the D.C. Attorney General, Carl Racine. What's his interest in Paxton? Sure. So Carl Racine, the Attorney General in D.C., is a former law school classmate of Paxton's. And as part of his response to the January 6th riot, he's been looking very closely at what um, various speakers at the event said before the riot started, including Trump. And he's even raised the possibility at various points that nothing has happened, that you know he might consider some sort of misdemeanor charge against Trump related to incitement of the riot. So, you know, when I spoke to him, he was very clear that, you know, he heard what Paxton said as well. He thought Paxton was on the wrong side of history and that he had those comments on tape and he was looking at them. The ability of the D.C. Attorney General to bring criminal charges is is limited. Can't prosecute felony cases in D.C. That's the responsibility of the U.S. Attorney's Office and just in the District of Columbia, which is a branch of the federal government. So, you know, whether he'll actually bring any charges over incitement of January 6th against any of the speakers is unclear. It's probably unlikely, but it's not impossible. And certainly in the early days after January 6th, Racine was making a lot of noises about investigating people who were there at the rally. But you spoke to so many people for this story. And do they all attest to the fact that, you know, he works well under pressure with all these things coming at him, he might actually have a fighting chance? I mean, look, he's a good politician. There's a reason he survived in Texas politics at the statewide level for so long. He's really personable. He's got a kind of folksy charm. He's not a super charismatic speaker. He doesn't bring the house down the way somebody like Ted Cruz has sort of learned to do over the years. But he's good one-on-one. He's got good relationships with other Republicans in Texas. 
He's been able to buddy up to Trump. And yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time he's been at the center of, of a scandal and accused of violating criminal law. And so I think he'll probably feel that he can ride this out. But this is a new kind of challenge from what he's ever faced before. He's never had a serious primary opponent since he was elected. This is a different type of challenge. Also, if he is indicted by federal prosecutors, it's hard to imagine he could survive. He would probably have to resign immediately were he to be indicted. But, you know, there's a big question mark of whether that's going to happen. That investigation has been going on for six, seven, eight months at this point. There haven't been any charges. And based on you know people I've spoken to who know about the investigation, the guy who's running it, a U.S. prosecutor in San Antonio named Joe Blackwell, who's kind of a public corruption specialist, you know, talking, you know, one-on-one with at least one of these whistleblowers um, who, uh, you know, flagged the misconduct, the alleged misconduct in Paxton's office. Um, there were other people kind of involved in this case that, that Blackwell's been in touch with. And so it's clear that he's been taking this seriously, but whether that means a criminal indictment of Ken Paxton, we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter David Yaffe Bellany. All eyes are on the Supreme Court in the last days of the term, with the question being whether 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer will retire so that President Joe Biden can appoint a black woman to the court as he's promised. In the meantime, Biden is continuing to nominate judges to circuit and district courts at a fast pace, confirming nominees faster than any president since Nixon at this time in the first year. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. How many circuit court vacancies has Biden filled, and how many does he have remaining to fill? Well, he has filled two, and one was confirmed last week, Candace Jackson Akawumi for the Seventh Circuit. And there are seven present vacancies for which he's nominated five people. Uh, And so he's working at a very quick pace. Uh, Then there are a number of future circuit vacancies, like seven more, but those would not be ready to be filled. So that's where we are on the appeals court. Are these just replacing judges appointed by Democrats so there's no chance of flipping a circuit? Yes and no. I mean, the person I just mentioned for the Seventh Circuit replaces someone Uh, I believe, a Republican president, I think Ford, appointed. Uh, So if you're counting that way, it does make a difference. Ketanji Brown-Jackson replaced, of course, Merrick Garland, who was a Democratic appointee, Clinton. Tell us about Candace Jackson Akawumi, who was confirmed to the Seventh Circuit. She is uh, the second black woman to serve on that court. Uh, and it had no people of color on the court until she was confirmed. Um, she was a federal public defender in, I think, Chicago for the last decade or so, and has also been in private practice. But she had a very strong hearing uh, and uh, was confirmed 50 to 43. So she got support from a few Republicans, Senator Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, and Lisa Murkowski. Why are the others not voting for these candidates? I mean, is it just a party line that they're not going to vote for any of Biden's nominees? Well, to some extent, that's true. It does seem like there's lockstep voting, with some exceptions, especially at the appellate level. That's less true uh, at the district level. 
remember back the first three, the two from New Jersey for the district court and Rodriguez for the Colorado court, they were pretty strong bipartisan voting for the district nominees, 81 to 16 for Zahid Karashi, who's the first Muslim to ever sit on the district bench. Uh, and so the other two were pretty strong uh, as well for district court. So I think that's the pattern you might be seeing. Very strong Republican bipartisan voting on district nominees, but resistant on the appellate nominees. It's consistent with you know the stress that Trump put on the appellate bench. It just seems that the partisan nature of the judicial confirmations at these circuit courts, it seems like nothing is going to change it. Well, that's right. There are some bipartisan measures they could take. But as you suggest, I think at that level, because those are such critical positions, you know, they're essentially the Supreme Courts in their regions because the Supreme Court hears so few cases, there's much more perceived to be and actually at stake in each one of these nominations and confirmations. So they're closely scrutinized and the votes in committee often are close and sometimes are tied. And I think you're right. There is a lot of party line voting that is going on at the appeals courts, less so with the district courts right now. So three of the openings at the circuit court level are at the second circuit. Biden has nominated two. Tell us about them. One is Eunice Lee, uh, nominated on May 12, and she has about two decades of experience, uh, both in the state and federal systems, as a a public defender. She's black, and I think there's no black person on the Second Circuit currently. And she had a hearing last month, and so she would get a committee vote, I think, when they come back on the 15th of July. And Second, Second Circuit nominee is Myrna Perez, who heads up the Voting Rights Project at NYU Law School. And she's been very active on voting rights issues and was recommended by Senator Schumer, nominated on the 15th of June. I wonder if she's going to face a lot of opposition or tough questions from Republicans because she has worked at the very liberal Brennan Center. Well, that's possible. But all the nominees for the appeals courts have faced rigorous and sometimes difficult questioning. Eunice Lee did, too, questions about her ability on a generalist court to hear civil cases, since her practice was almost exclusively criminal defense work. And Veronica Rossman for the Tenth Circuit has been a longtime federal public defender, too, and faced similar questions. But you're right. I think that's true. And there have already been some critical comments about Perez. And Senator Grassley, the ranking member, has talked a lot about what he characterizes as criminal defense attorneys and wondering, can they handle the civil docket? Are they grasping at straws here? Years ago, did you ask even Supreme Court justices about could they handle the criminal docket if they were civil? Is this something new? No, and that's a really good point. Think about Lewis Powell. I think he never had a criminal case, yet he wrote some of the most important decisions in his time on the court in the criminal procedure area. He was basically a corporate civil attorney. He didn't do a lot of litigation. Everybody admired and respected him as a fine jurist for the period he served. So you're correct. 
second, think back to the Trump appellate nominees. They were not questioned when they had either little or no civil or criminal experience. Many of them, for example, were prosecutors and had not done much civil work. So there's a bit of a double standard here. How's he doing compared to other presidents? Well, he's doing very well. He has confirmed two people for the appellate court and five for the district court. And the last time a president filled so many by July 4th recess was President Nixon. So you have to go back to, I think, 69 to find a president who had uh, come out of the starting block so quickly. And don't forget, there are a whole number of people uh, in the pipeline. Uh, Next month, we'll see a couple more hearings and we'll have committee votes and confirmation. So I think if we're talking at the August recess, we're likely to see 15 or maybe even more people confirmed, which also I think will go back quite a ways before you can find another president who's been so active with such a good process. I mean, I think they're moving to the White House, they're moving to committee hearings every two weeks, then committee votes, and then floor votes. And so it does look like a well-oiled and orchestrated machine. Are you surprised? Because I thought that the Trump administration would get the top grade for moving judicial nominees through. Well, he didn't start as quickly, and that's understandable. He wasn't familiar with the federal government and how it worked. But Biden, of course, remember, has 50 years of experience with uh, select judges in and out administrations and in the Senate for more than three decades and as chair of judiciary. So it's not surprising that he um, is very astute about how the process works, nomination and confirmation, and would have great people around him, which he does. Of course, Ron Klain, the chief of staff, is acutely aware of this because in earlier Democratic administrations, he had had responsibility for judicial selection. And one big criticism of Obama's first year was not much activity on that front. And uh, I think this administration has learned a lesson from that and has moved very quickly and effectively. Do you know who's leading the charge at the White House? Yes, it's uh, Dana Ramos, who is the White House counsel. And then there are, I think, a couple of associate uh, White House counsels who are uh, working closely with her. But as I understand, the president is often interviewing himself the uh, appellate nominees, not all the district nominees, because there just isn't enough time. But the nominees are being, or candidates are being thoroughly vetted before they are actually nominated. And the people in that office are people who have either worked on the Hill on judicial selection, worked in prior White Houses on judicial selection, and are intimately familiar with the processes. So now I'm going to switch to the Supreme Court for a moment. Justice Stephen Breyer. There are no indications whether he's going to retire or not. He has actually hired four clerks for next term. So that might be an indication that he's not going to retire. If he doesn't retire, what do you make of Senator Mitch McConnell saying that if the Republicans retake the majority in the Senate, it's highly unlikely that he'll let President Biden confirm a Supreme Court vacancy if one opened up in 2024? And we don't even know what he would do if there were an opening in 2023. I think you're correct. He's already issued a threat that he would repeat what happened with Merrick Garland in 2016 for the Scalia vacancy. 
if something similar happened. So on the other hand, uh, it may be that Justice Breyer would step down in 2022 and the Democrats would still have a majority in the Senate. Uh, and they, Democrats may win in 2022 and hold on to the Senate. Um, so there are a lot of scenarios. Um, McConnell can't do very much by way of obstruction um, until he has a majority. And so that won't happen at the earliest until 2023. So we still have, uh, there's another year in which um, the Democrats could nominate and confirm someone for Breyer's seat should he step down. Of course, the progressives like to point out that it's a 50-50 Senate and anything can happen to one of the Democratic senators. That's true. That is possible. Uh, And I'm sure the senators are thinking about that, as is the White House. Um, But those are delicate, difficult kinds of issues. And one of the most important decisions that anyone makes is, you know, whether to retire. And so I think we'll just have to wait and see. Breyer's position is so like that of the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where he now is the most senior among the liberal justices and has the authority to assign opinions if the liberals are in the majority. And that's exactly the position that Ginsburg was in. Yes, but fortunately he doesn't have, as far as we know, um, some of the health issues that she had, and he is significantly younger than she was at the time. Um, So hopefully he is in good shape, and he certainly seems to be keeping up with everything uh, in terms of his acuity and ability to turn out opinions and to ask searching questions during oral argument. And so we'll see. And we may see in the next few days because justices often retire after the last opinions of the term are handed down. So that will be on Thursday. We'll keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.